you're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. In this episode, I'm joined by two software engineers from VMware to talk about the Carvel project. Carvel is a series of single-purpose tools that aid you in deploying applications on top of Kubernetes, including templating, image building and tracking, secrets management, app deploying, and more. Dimitri Kalanin and John Ryan are my guests, and this is basically an hour of them breaking down the reasons each tool exists when you might need them, and me asking noob questions about how they're used and how they compare to other projects in the Kubernetes ecosystem with some of the similar functionality. Because there were so many tools and features to discuss today, we didn't get time to demo anything. So hopefully this podcast will be a faster way for you to mentally evaluate them and decide if you need to investigate one or two of the tools further. So please enjoy this show with Dimitri and John of VMware's Carvel team. Hello, welcome to the show. We're here today to talk about Carvel. So let's get to it. I'm excited to be joined by my two fine guests. We got Dimitri Kalanin, Dimitri from VMware, and then we've got John Ryan over there on the right from VMware, both software engineers at VMware that are working on this Carvel stuff that we're gonna spend the whole show about. And there's a lot of tools here. So if you don't see the tool right away that we're talking about, if that's not interesting, stay tuned because this project has a lot going on in it. And we're gonna have to take a few minutes to actually get through it all. And I think there's probably something in here that you could use. There's a wide array of tools here that solve problems. And that's kind of what we talk about on this show. So it's perfect. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, glad to join you, Brett. Yeah. And so you're both on the same team, right? You're both solving these open source problems and managing these. You have a community meeting every week that's going on in like 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. We just happen to be skipping this week. We just went to a fortnightly schedule for the oh, summer. Okay. But yes, usually it's every week. Nice, nice. Taking, giving people a little bit more of a break. Perfect. Right. But yeah, I was looking through the notes, sort of seeing some of the latest stuff that's happening across all the projects and trying to get a little bit updated because I too need to learn these tools and I'm hoping to learn stuff from you today. So if you haven't heard of this project, you may have actually heard of a tool from this project, but not realized it's part of the Carvel project. So would one of you like to start us off with sort of how did Carvel begin and what is its purpose and focus? <laughs> Dimitri, you're John, up. You don't want to, you don't want to give it a go. Your version of the origin story is so delightful. I wouldn't want to get in the way. All right. All right. Well, yeah. So Carvel is a project. It started out really as a single tool and a single kind of an experiment. And then it kind of grew from there organically. Now I've spent, I don't know, maybe close to, I don't know, a decade now working on various infrastructure related projects, working on, let's say, VM management, container management, worked on Cloud Foundry, worked on various Kubernetes projects. And so 
some of this, some of this experience really led to forming some of these opinions around how do you actually do, you know, how do you manage configuration? How do you deploy stuff? What kind of quality are you looking in the tools that you want to be working with? And so organically, I kind of started poking in one direction. I was looking at how do you actually deploy some more complicated things to Kubernetes? And, you know, obviously we're all familiar with various tools out there. And I kind of wanted to explore some different type of spins on it. And one of the tools that kind of popped up as an idea was actually YTT. And that's where I kind of explore some of this ways of how do you blend the templating and overlaying and whatnot. And I'm sure we're going to go a little bit in more detail. So I won't spend too much time on it. And once I kind of gotten interested in solving this problem, you know, like, okay, great. You have configuration. You're able to, you know, change it in various ways and shape it and whatnot. But how do you actually work with that configuration of Kubernetes cluster? And of course, you know, everybody has been using kubectl and all kinds of other tools to deploy stuff. I really, really try to blend a little bit of Terraform style kind of a thinking where you have this notion of a planning phase and then eventually notion of an application phase where you actually take those changes that you've seen on the screen and you apply it to the cluster. So kind of like went into interesting directions. And of course, you know, the project has grown way beyond my initial experimentation. It's been probably two, three years now since the beginnings of some of that stuff. And, you know, out of that started coming out some of the other tools, you know, like image package, K-Build, Cap Controller, et cetera. And maybe actually we were talking a little bit earlier, right? One of the things that's not perhaps immediately clear from the project is where do these tools fit into this larger, you know, development, staging, production workflows that we all have. And I believe, you know, different people will use these tools differently, right? So they will probably focus on the particular problems where, you know, their current workflow needs a little bit of improvement. But generally, the idea is that you should be able to use these tools throughout the entire workflow. Since the development, when you're, you know, typing out your code for your application, you're locally iterating on your maybe Minikube or something like that, and eventually going all the way through to the staging environment and a production environment, right? So the tools are flexible enough where they should be able to be helpful in all of these different stages. And of course, as a side benefit, you potentially get to use the same tools for all of these activities, right? So hopefully you don't have to change the ways that you do certain things locally and then suddenly you have to do the entirely different thing for a production environment. So yeah, so maybe I'll just leave it at that and maybe John can fill in any other gaps that's worth filling in for this intro. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so I think what I can add here, I want to sort of elaborate just a little bit on on what Dimitri's talking about with organic. It's that it's building from the ground up. So it wasn't that we had this grand vision for what the actual suite became, but instead looked at where we were at at that moment, looked to see what the problems were, prioritized that, went to solve those. And so what that's led to is like a very thoughtful growth of a set of tools that when you sort of take a step back and look at that whole workflow that Dimitri was talking about from built software all the way to the bits running in production, that there's sort of like natural things that you would do along the way. And the tools fit nicely into each of those workflow steps, or they properly straddle a couple of steps where they're most appropriate. So while it's been organic, what that means is just been allowing the natural problems to arise and solve those 
as we see the need. So yeah, mm-hmm. sort of the overall thing, like what is the overall thing doing? Like there's actually a couple different angles to this. Dimitri hinted at the fact that like many of the tools kind of stand alone and they sort of, because they are addressing a particular problem within that workflow, you could use it for just that problem. But the overall workflow is really about packaging, distributing, deploying and managing software that runs on Kubernetes. Right. Okay, so we're Kubernetes focused and these tools, I like how you mentioned in here about the the Unix philosophy that these tools are small and single purpose or, you know, single purpose, whatever that, (laughs) whatever we decide the the single scope is. And so they're independently used, you can use them separately or together. And these are all things that I like, like these are, these all sound like great things. And is there a SaaS component to this? Or are these all just isolated tools that I download, like open source binaries? How does that yeah, this is all just relatively sized, <laughs> tiny, tiny Go tools. I think maybe an exception to that would be uh, we have a few controllers that run on Kubernetes for Kubernetes, kind of a native API functionality. And then, you know, as we eventually integrate and help various users of Carvel, right, we may want to, let's say we have a Terraform provider that mm-hmm. people use with Terraform. So you want to have that nice experience. So th- there's some kind of integration bridges, right? Okay. So what's a good, what, is there a gateway drug here? (laughs) Is there one that like is the most likely to be the first Carvel tool for someone to use? Maybe one of the popular, is there a more popular one than the others? Yeah, there, there, there's sort of two gateway drugs uh, into Carvel. One of them is YTT. And that's because there's a lot of folks that are these days, for whatever reason, we're using a lot of YAML. There's good reason. And so Pretty quickly, especially in Kubernetes, you're dealing with a lot of it and you're dealing with a lot of boilerplates. You're looking for boilerplate reduction. And there's a host there. There's this is a rich part of the ecosystem right now. There's a lot of different ways of dealing with that boilerplate and the desire to make things modular. But YTT does this. And I think maybe one thing that makes it particularly different from the others in its class is that it brings together templating and overlaying. So patching. So if you know, the values that you need your user supply upfront, great, you can name those. And you can narrow that to just the set that they would typically use. Because then we also provide the ability to, if you want to make a patch on the tail end of the rendering of your YAML, you can write those too. And they would all go together. It all kind of is supplied by that. So it's a natural problem. It's a common problem. It's one that doesn't isn't just Kubernetes or set. Docker Compose, Concourse. There's a lot of other tools that are using YAML for their configuration. The other one is CAP um, because it's nearly a drop-in replacement for kubectl on some level. Like kubectl does other things, but you basically you can deploy your resources, your manifest with CAP, and it instantly gives you a much more rich experience. It tells you what the change is going to be on the cluster, shows you the diff down to the man to the individual resources if you'd like. And then as it's applying those resources, it keeps you up to date. How's it going? What are we waiting on? And gives you that live feedback about what's happening there. You can also control the ordering of how resources get applied so that while, of course, distributed systems will on Kubernetes are meant to be eventually consistent, you could reduce the amount of noise that you get from errors or failures by making sure that the resources that like a deployment needs some other service to, to be up and running, well, you to make sure that that's available first. You can articulate that in CAP. 
All right. I have so many questions. Okay, so with YTT, first, I'm glad I actually said it right. Wasn't wanted to make sure that it wasn't an, there wasn't an abbreviation there. Is this something that is sounds a little bit like the combo of Helm and Customize? Would that be a fair combination? Like, is this meant to replace those things in my workflow so that I can have one templating tool instead of possibly multiple templating tools? Straight to the interesting questions. A little bit of context, right? Is So already John, I think, mentioned that it is a genetic tool. It doesn't know anything about Kubernetes, zero idea. It just deals with data structures. It also has some additional features, you know, like allow you to do some textual templating as well, et cetera. But the core of it, really an engine that allows you to do data structure manipulation. Now, when you say Helm, within Helm, we've got all kinds of stuff going on. We have the templating phase, we've got the deployment phase, we've got the packaging phases. So within Helm, all of these different things going on. And so by itself, there's no way that it can replace it. And just to be clear, right, we're not trying to replace you know, Helm, we actually, some of the tools work very well with Helm, in the, including YTT, actually. You could be using, for example, YTT to further augment your Helm chart with this feature called the Helm Post Renderer, or you could be just using Helm template and then piping it into YTT, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there's all these different right. ways people can actually use the two tools to solve their thing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you've mentioned customize as well. So... Customize takes a quite of a different approach from Helm. Helm is all about templating. Customize is all about the overlay. And so we do have the overlaying stuff within YTT, right? Why is it blended with templating? Because we also have templating in YTT. Well, having this singular language allows you to really take advantage of the flow that you're going through. You can decide, hey, certain things I actually want to expose through templating. And I think, honestly, at least my opinion, maybe John has a different opinion, but it's much easier to do templating. You're kind of writing your regular code, you know, you're inserting the values, right? You're not having to think of this uh, kind of an additional layer of how do I insert my value at a later point. But there's obviously overlaying functionality that might be useful for you when you're trying to bring in maybe and modify some third-party content or you're trying to tweak something that wasn't originally exposed or something like that. So I don't know, it's not a replacement to either of the tools. It's definitely competitive to those tools for certain problems. And even you you can argue that for certain problems that you're not able to do to solve with customizer, you can very easily solve with YTT. But it's really up to the users how they kind of blend the tools together. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm getting a feeling like it's a little more universal because like I like I do compose locally. So I know compose overrides and those are different then if I, when I use customize with certain clients and then other clients prefer Helm. And of course, and, and then I've recently worked on a project in the last year that was Helm with some customize after, like it was, you would render the Helm and then use overrides and customize. So that was a project <laughs> to use both. So it, like, I'm getting the feeling here that could I use this one tool for all those things, or at least to get the features out of the templating part for all those things and create some more consistency? Yeah, that's right. So where Helm, like Dimitri was saying, is solving a lot of problems in an integrated way. If you look at just Helm template plus yeah. that post renderer, that's a great, that's a near complete overlap with what YTT, that, that same problem set that YTT is solving. So yes. And the other thing that, that's different here is that with Go templating, which is the underlying mechanism by which Helm does its templating is the baked in Go templating. That's textual. And so that means you need to be aware of 
are do my are my values being properly escaped that they're going to make for valid YAML? You need to include pipes and filters for doing indentation to manage that correctly. YTT takes a different approach, for better or for worse. And the better part is, well, the, the approach is, instead of looking at it as a text file that happens to have indentation like YAML, YTT immediately parses your input as YAML. And everything else that happens after that is happening on this YAML structure. So some of the benefits are all values that are rendered out are guaranteed valid YAML. And that when you are making changes in the structure, if you view your file as a YAML file, then the way in which you're writing, say like your overlays, start to feel more natural with respect to like, oh, well, I, I want to be reaching this container named X within the deployment that has this other name. You're thinking about that in terms of the the actual objects themselves rather than, okay, there's that one file that had that deployment in it and I've got to find the spot where, you know. So there's that piece that it's it feels a little bit more like you're dealing with the structure, you're dealing with the object. Right. That could be a little bit of a learning curve. Like, I don't know about you, but I've spent decades in my career doing templates that were textual. So that just like, we sort of have like our natural, like in the back of our heads, those text templating chops. And some of those actually get me in trouble in YTT. I, I need to step back a little bit where you need to downshift and go like, I need to control byte by byte. You can do that as well in, in those moments. Hmm. Very cool. But yeah, so, it, it solves that larger thing. Yes. Yeah. So this is a tool that would fit somewhere in my automation, I assume, right? This is pre-deployment however that deployment happens. And I like the fact that it includes other, I don't know if it's a YAML schema support. Like, do you actually go through specific tools and say, we're going to be smarter about, like, how would I use it with Docker Compose? Am I using, am I replacing the Docker Compose command or do I have to run a YTT first and then my Compose sort of is rendered out? How do, what does that look like? Right, yeah. So basically you can think of it as whatever your templates are, those are sort of like expression. There's like, you've extracted the, the boilerplate out of that, or you have, you wanted to have a simpler interface for someone to use. And there's like two or three variables you want them to be able to set. And then it'll produce that YAML. So whatever that output is that whatever downstream tool, Docker compose, kubectl, cap, whatever that output will be that standard YAML that you know and love with respect to that tool. All right. Yeah, very cool. And so does what was the second one that you mentioned that people were oh cap. cap. Right. Not K app, which was what I was gonna say. Cap. How do you pronounce it, Dimitri? Cap. I was gonna okay. say before we jump into cap, I did see a question. Mm, yeah. What is your take on Q compared to YTT? I don't know, John, mm. if you want to throw in a few. I'm a big Q fan. I love I love what they're doing over there with the value lattice and and really making a part of that part of the templating experience or the value calculation experience really deterministic. So I don't know how to compare and contrast. They really solve the same general problem in different ways. And actually, Q is solving a lot of other problems as well. It's meant to be more of a platform that happens to also support YAML. So Q has it, it advantages in, in being able to clearly see from where did a particular value come from. They make that absolutely like, like force you into doing, designing your inputs in a way that, that that becomes obvious through inspection, that order doesn't matter about how you're providing your inputs. And that puts a constraint on you as well. So there's just like anything that's like that, uh, you have to work within that and it's a much more disciplined approach 
to data values. They also do this really interesting marrying of values and types together. So a given value within a structure can begin its life as a type. You're just, what you're doing is you're defining constraints in this values lattice. And the widest constraint could just be, it needs to be an integer, for example. And then later it needs to be an integer. Maybe somebody says, well, it has to be within a certain port range. That's what this thing is apparently, greater than 1024. And then finally, someone who is actually providing a concrete value provides a value and it needs to satisfy all of the constraints prior to that. There's a real intuitive slickness to that. Accomplishing the same thing in YTT is a matter of defining schema in which you say, well, this is an int. You actually give a default value. We infer the type from that default value. So you'd put like 1024 or zero or whatever, and that's an integer. And then if you want to further constrain that, we're actually currently a feature in development is building in validations that run as we calculate those data values. So there's a lot of comparable features in around just this one space of templating, but Q's much bigger. Qlang is a larger ecosystem. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to use Q yet. So thanks for the question, Engine. It's a great conversation. I know of Dagger. <laughs> That's the only tool that is on my like really short to-do list to finally get into. I've been watching Solomon and the team for since they announced it, and that's just a it's another language that, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, I wasn't really doing any YAML. So I, I guess, you know, it's been 10 years now, you know, I got Tommel and YAML down, Jason. So now it's uh, this is the next one for me. So this, okay, so YTT, uh, I'm assuming that's YAML specific, right? That's one thing that's like, that's what the Y stands for. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, so we had a couple other questions. The question about the opinion on open source community moving towards cluster class implementations to reduce the scope of YTT? I'm not actually sure what this question means. I think I kind of know what it means. Well, for some context, right? I think some folks use YTT or could in theory use any other tooling as well to kind of a represent a higher level configuration for cluster API for Kubernetes. So if you want to deploy cluster, you know, via your management cluster in cluster API, you may say, hey, look, let me use tool like YDT or let me use tool, I don't know, maybe like Q, some other tool, customize, and try to kind of manage a lot of the lower level details that Cluster API gives you access to. And you may want to actually, I don't know, raise the abstraction level there. And so I, I believe recently, or I don't know if it's recent enough, or there was a concept that Cluster API natively introduced that's effectively allowing you to group this lower level details into a higher level concept. And the concept is cluster class, I believe. And then, you know, you can just reference that class and cluster API will do the magic behind the scenes. What's my opinion on it? Well, I think it's two, two different approaches for similar problem. I could absolutely see it being like the cluster class concept being useful for some use cases. I don't think it's as generic as using configuration tooling to kind of wrap that complexity up into, a, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a class or whatever function, something like that. I think there's definitely tensions like should cluster API really be getting into the business of kind of trying to abstract this kind of things versus letting the user use their generic tooling, whatever that tooling may be. Maybe they're using you know, Helm charts to represent their clusters or something like that. I don't know. I'm, a, you know, I'm probably a little bit biased in how I would manage my production environments, whether it be with YDT or some other configuration tool. I feel like cluster class tries to tries to hide too much, and then because it tries to hide too much, you now have this effectively shared 
thing that a bunch of clusters depend on, right? And so then all kinds of problems arise, right? Well, what if I want to actually change one cluster to maybe turn it into some kind of a canary, you know, uh, deploy, right? Like see if it, things break or not. Well, I think some of that stuff be, become a little bit more, well, I don't know if it becomes too hard, right? You could probably be changing cluster classes left and right, but there might be some internal, you know, restrictions around that. But I feel like it hides too much. So I don't know, that's my take. It probably the regular answer of, you know, if it solves a problem for you, great. If it doesn't solve a problem for you, great. Yeah, good answer there. That's, there's some subtle details there on the cluster. I was just saying like, yeah, I use this YTT to manage cluster classes. Is there anything other than the docs that I can use to get more familiar with YTT, a demo lab or GitHub examples to get more practice? Yeah, like on the homepage, there's a whole suite of examples that run directly in a playground. That's where I see a lot of folks start to to develop some deeper chops beyond just the basic examples. There is some video content. We have a blog and we point to a couple of articles in there. We don't yet have a fully integrated, like from soup to nuts curriculum that we produce out of our project. There are some things that other folks in VMware who are doing education are have pulled together uh, a number of those things. We can uh, maybe grab some of those links and share those. Uh, but what we've found is it's best to, to solve the problems that are in front of you, one. And two, so we try and like uh, describe what the feature set is in these examples as best we can, and then learn just enough to do that. Perhaps one of YTT's Achilles heels is that it's really powerful. You could easily overcomplicate things. I do it constantly where we're answering questions in our Slack channel. And I come back with some crazy Python group Goldberg machine and Dimitri says, hey, what about this template? We just put in these values, like, you know, make some simple. Yeah. So it's be careful as you learn the power, you want to figure out how to make the complexity you're introducing appropriate to the problem that you're solving. But I think the question was about really kind of getting started. This is actually like a really great way to get into it is by doing it. And there's comments and whatnot in, in each of these examples. Nice. So... Yeah, I love examples, and your, I love that your suggestion is solve a real problem you have now instead of preparing for the future. Because uh, templating is only necessary when you need templating, and you, the way you know you need it is that you're not able to actually deploy without changing things manually. So if you have to do that, then now you need templating. And I think that's a common, to be fair, that is a common question of people new to maybe even just infrastructure templating in general and they're seeing all these tools out there and they're not really sure of which one's even the right tool for them. And so I think if you live in a Kubernetes world where you're messing with Kubernetes servers, you're going to end up touching all these tools, I think, in some point in your lifetime, especially if you hop jobs, just because every team I work with has a slightly different workflow, a slightly different tool set. A lot of them, sometimes they keep it simple and they're really like we talked, like John mentioned that we want to make this complicated. Like we have a tendency as engineers to overcomplicate. And I find that to be true in templating, not just code. (laughs) And so I think it's a solid effort, I think, for good teams to actually go back and look at their templating and say, is this an app problem that we're making a templating problem? Like maybe the app itself should just handle this or whatever. Like I see that sometimes where templating can take an old monolith or you can take an old fragile app and hide the rough edges with proper fancy helm templating and stuff like that. And I sometimes I have to push back and say, let's make that an app problem, not a, not a, I don't know what you want to call it, a build engineer or deployment engineering problem. So yeah, I, I'm all, I'm hundred percent with you on that comment. <laughs> all right. I think we're going to, let's 
table YTT for now, because I definitely want to get into another couple other of the popular ones. And then at the end, for those of you that are waiting for all the tools, I think we're going to end up having to do like a rapid fire elevator pitch on each of the other tools, just so we can get them into the podcast and get people aware that these tools exist and what they might solve. But if we go back to, can we talk about CAP? I keep wanting to call it KAP. CAP? So what's the problem set that this, this is trying to solve? I think it boils down to when you're deploying stuff, you really want to be deploying a group of resources in some kind of a logical grouping. That's why it's called CAP or KAP, or is the app part of the application, right? It's like, hey, you're deploying 10 different resources and over longer periods of time, right? Like maybe let's say over months, sometimes new resources show up, old resources get removed. Sometimes, you know, you decide to update things, tweak things, change them in a particular way, move things around. So you really want to have that hopefully seamless mechanism where you're not really thinking like, do I need to do something manually? You really should just be thinking, okay, here's my configuration, run it through your deployer, in this case, cap deploy, and the cluster will be as I've said my configuration is, right? Nothing extra. Nothing, you know, nothing missing. Uh, and so kubectl, you know, if you do a kubectl apply by default, right, you're not really getting, for example, the experience where the resources that you no longer reference in your configuration get deleted, right? Now, you do have some additional flags like prune and things like that, but at least in my own experience, I haven't really found them to be as production ready as one would hope. And actually, I don't know if prune ever came out of alpha beta state as well. But all in all, that was the original intent for CAP. And, and also maybe as a secondary note here, when I manage a production environment, I want to be absolutely certain what am I about to do to that production environment. And so that's where that CAP deploy two phases come into play. You have that preview of what are the exact changes. And in code, there is no other changes that will be applied except those changes that are specific. It's it's impossible. Right? It's not. So the preview itself is not just to look pretty. It acts as a plan for yeah. the code to execute. Right? And at least personally, that gives me confidence that when I'm applying this stuff to production, there's not going to be some other random update that just kind of hides away from you that will go on and, I don't know, ca cause havoc or something like that. Yeah, for us infrastructure people, once we got used to something like Terraform plan, a lot of us just want that in every tool. <laughs> every tool that changes something, I want that kind of, that, that sort of workflow where I'm, yeah, sure, I have a PR, but, and the PR is approved and the automation maybe even tested it, but what am I really changing? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting one. So it looks like this is the controller that would go in the cluster. That sounds optional. Is that, could you yeah, get the composable like that? Yep. Cap controller and cap are technically two separate, well, not technically, they are two separate projects, but cap controller does use cap inside of it. And in fact, actually, it uses all kinds of other tools that, you know, well, obviously, if you want to use them. So cap controller really is this orchestrator that you can put in your cluster and it introduces some high-level APIs called AppCR and PackageCR and Package Install CR. And so that app CR really divides the work into these three sections, patch, template, deploy. And within those sections, you get to decide which tools you want to be using. Or at least for myself, there was a lot of the different combinations, right? Sometimes you want to be fetching stuff from Git. Sometimes you want to be fetching stuff from, I don't know, uh, where else, HTTP URL, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all kinds of different fetchers. 
There's also different templars. Sometimes you want to be using Helm templates. Sometimes you want to be using YTT. Sometimes you want to be using both. Sometimes you want to be using this other templar called KBuild. That's actually another project within Carvel. And so really cap controller, I, I really like to think of it as a really dumb system and it's intentionally dumb. It doesn't want to do any heavy lifting. It just wants to delegate to the tools that are designed to do a particular task. And so, yeah, so cap controller uses cap for the deploy part. And actually that's the only deployer that cap controller comes with, at least at this point. So I can use KAP imperatively, it sounds like, where I can type commands. And the controller, does that, that's what allows me to do it declaratively, put it in a Git repo. You mentioned Git ops on the page, so plus one on <laughs> getting into my favorite new buzzword. Well, maybe of 2021, maybe that was my buzzword of 2021 or 2020. But I mean, once I get used, we talk about Git ops a lot on this channel, and it's hard to go a week and talk about a Kubernetes tool and not ask the question around, I'd liked a Git ops workflow and I'd also like the GitOps idea that my cluster is actually monitoring for its own changes rather than me having to push everything and hope for the best. This sounds like this is like the style that you're approaching it from, is that, or maybe you're doing both and you don't, you're unopinionated. It's actually both. And so CAP itself, right? Actually, you threw in an interesting variation there is that, you know, CAP is imperative, CAP control may be declarative. Well, that actually, I would say, depends on how you decide to look at the tool. So cap deploy command, that's, I don't know, 99% of the time, that's the only command I use in cap. There's actually, well, there is really cap deploy and cap delete and everything else is miscellaneous. Cap deploy, I, I would argue, is a very much a command that enables the declarative flow. It takes the input, whatever that, you know, YAML input would be, right? Set of Kubernetes resources, and it converges someplace, right? Your Kubernetes cluster with that content, right? So you as a user, you're not really trying to sit there and figure out like, should I delete this resource? Should I add that resource? Should I update that resource? So in my opinion, that is the declarative flow. Now, cap controller takes that flow and says, hey, you know what? You could be running that flow yourself from the CI pipeline, maybe from your local machine, maybe, I don't know, right? For local development, you're probably doing it on the local machine. Maybe, you know, actually, honestly, if I would be running my own kind of a, website or something like that. I'm not sure I would bother with installing controllers. If I don't need anything complicated, I would just have a GitHub action that just calls my yeah. cap boy and maybe a little bit of YTT. And, you know, now that you can, you know, configure your, let's say GKE with OIDC setup with GitHub action, right? You don't have to be dealing with any credentials. So, you know, you've configured that flow. It, you know, gets fired by the fired off by your GitHub action when your things change and you're kind of done, right? So you don't even have to manage anything on a cluster. But for folks who are interested in running additional, maybe more complicated things on their clusters where, you know, you actually maybe taking advantage of those APIs on the cluster directly, right? Yeah, you can be using app CRs, you could be using package installs, and for that, you would need a cap controller. But the same tooling gets used in both places. So supposedly, it, it's a really easy transition and you're not really learning anything new there. Yeah. Is this something where I would, I, you know, like when I think of my deployments, I'm thinking of like Flux Argo CD style tools. Is this uh, meant as an alternative to those tools? It's competitive, right? There, there's definitely quite a bit of overlap, right? In with, across those three different projects. I think the way that we've kind of aligned some of the features and functionalities is a little bit different. Actually, even Cap Controller at the time when it was born, I don't believe for example, Flux V2 was, you know, in existence. So right. a lot of right. the 
kind of ideas from earlier on, you know, just seeing how people use Helm and how they operate production environments were kind of carried into cap controller with this app CR concept. So for example, every app CR requires you to provide a service account versus having some global privileged access that cap controller can do everything or something like that. Right? We, we okay. did not want to open up more where suddenly you can't be running a multi-tenant system. Right? So all of that stuff have really been baked in since the beginning in cap controller. And of course, you know, Given that Carvel is really a combination of these various tools, it's really a play on how do we allow you to combine these tools in a very, hopefully, easy to consume ways on your cluster. And so Cap Controller kind of represents that, right? How do you take the, maybe your Helm template plus, I don't know, YTT plus some other, you know, set of tools and how do you actually bring it into cluster? So that's a little bit harder to do with the other tools. What is CRD in Kubernetes? I would give you the definition that rather than saying custom resource definition, which to some people means nothing, <laughs> I would say it's adding, it allows you to extend the functionality of Kubernetes and extend the API to add third-party software and make the third-party software Kubernetes aware, or you could look at it as making Kubernetes third-party software aware. So I don't know if that's a definition that you all would agree with, but yeah. And these tools, all right, so... I've got my templating, I've got my, my declarative and imperative deployments, and we've got all these other problems you're solving. So let, let's do some rapid fire on this stuff. What's next? Well, I don't know which one is next. Let's go with maybe K-Build. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, K-Build is actually an interesting kind of a, it, it sits typically in the in between some configuration tooling and some deployment tooling where you really want to be resolving your images to digest, and sometimes that may involve building your images. So how do you, for example, convert your source code into an image? Well, there's obviously tools like Docker Build and, you know, there's Pack CLI from BuildPacks Group and there's all kinds of other tools. So KBuild doesn't really want to reinvent any of those tools, but we do want to delegate to them. And why do we delegate to them? Was because you typically want to, let's say you decide to run a Docker Build every single time you made some update, right? Well. If you just have a little K-Build configuration snippet, uh, that can happen for you automatically as you go through this Unixy pipeline. As you have this configuration, maybe it's, I don't know, produced through Helm template or through YTT or something like that. You want to insert that new image that has been built, that image reference into that YAML by the time before it makes it into your deployment tooling. So yeah, so that's, I don't know. John, I don't know. Do you have any additions to how to explain K-Build? Yeah, I think the way that I think about it is that there's this general desire to know that the bits that are running in production were the bits that were produced. So either it was an image that we produced or it's an image that we obtained. And we know that at the moment where we're putting all that together, we're actually referencing a very specific instance, not even just a version, but like a digest, like that set of bits. That's what gets run in production. I want to have the security of knowing that it hasn't been tampered with on the way into the cluster. And so K-Build solving these two things. One, it brings all references down to that, that digest. And so that is cryptographically a fingerprint to say, I can ID that these are, I can attest that these are the bits we wanna, that we wanna run. And that when we go to deployment, that's what we'll run. And then the other part is I wanna be able to easily make that reference. So in my original deployment manifest, 
I'll refer to an image and I just want to say, oh, I want Nginx there. I want Redis there. I want whatever the, the Docker URL is or the uh, container URL is. But as it makes its way out into a deployment phase, I really want to be able to like pin that down at that moment. And so Kbuild does that. And then it provide, it collects basically like a mapping it says, oh, anywhere you're using the image that says Redis version, modern version Redis, I want to, I want to actually use this digest. Then when you go then, so the receipts for that mapping is what's produced on the build side. And then when you go to deploy it in your app resource that you defined, you would say, oh, I want to run cabled over that. And by the way, here's my little receipt from that build. And it does the rewrite of those images right as you're about to send it to that deploy step. So it takes care of this aspect of a digest reference of your images. And like Dimitri said, we didn't want to get in the business of like writing builders. So it orchestrates that build and allows you to, when you're building your own distributed system, whether using code for your images or Docker, Docker build X or what have you, whatever you're doing to build your images, you can delegate, you can say, Hey, I want to use whichever builders are required for each of your different parts of your system and have one step that does that image resolution for you. So this sounds like, because internally, all, like a lot of these, most of the orchestrators I know, like they all do this internally, but it's at runtime. So it sounds like you're moving this important, I agree, an important step of truly understanding that, that the bits match what you intended. It sounds like it's moving it back into the CI or CD uh, automation a, a step or two. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's definitely one way to look at it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I companion tool to it as well, image package that, that kind of takes it even a step further. Yeah, because this is actually, a, this is interesting for me because it's a rough step with a lot of the people that I help, the companies that I consult for, is they're always trying to figure out, well, that happy medium of, I mean, I'd love to have everything fully automated the minute that an application PR is merged into main, eventually everything gets put on the server and I did nothing else. And then there's sort of the manual GitOps approach of, no, you need to go and make a PR for the environment that you want. And then you're going to have to usually update an image tag to match what you built. And humans are sometimes often doing this. And that becomes their sort of safety, mental safety gate of a human actually typed that in. But in this case, if we're using these tools, it sounds like somewhere in that process, it's taking the version that we intended and hum human typed in, and possibly in our Kubernetes YAML there. And then it's, is that something that's piping out of the PR and like documenting in the PR as a comment? Is that kind of how someone would use, the, use this tool? Or is it updating another Git repo of the actual YAML output that's so, applied to the server? So it really kind of depends how you decide to incorporate into your pipelines. We, we, we don't try to, you know, effectively facilitate how you actually save this information, mm -hmm. ways to go about it. So think of it more as, you know, if you've seen that, I don't know, what's a good example? Like a lot of the package managers nowadays, right? They have a log file, right? Where they log down a particular version of something. Well. I sometimes think of kbuild as, as similar to that. You're locking down a particular reference. Now, whether you do it automatically or whether you build, you know, or whether human is involved in some of that stuff or whether you 
I don't know, put it in into your regular PR flow or something like that. That kind of becomes a question for whoever is automating this stuff. Yeah, it's really up to the users, I guess. <clears throat> yeah, it's an easier example to talk about something like Nginx or Redis or something, right? Yeah, it was when you talk about your own software, it gets highly opinionated and workflow specific. Yeah, so, all right. So how does image package help? So that, that's actually a, a, a almost, so KBuild and image package are, a lot of times used together. So you build all this, let's say images, right? You have this receipt file with the, you know, images that, that are being referenced, right? Whether it's your own images or third-party images or whatever images. And you have this Kubernetes configuration. Well, sometimes you actually want to make a first-class asset out of this, right? Especially this is useful if you're distributing this type of bits to somebody else. Now, this is commonly you know, you could see it as like for VMware, for example, we want to distribute a particular software to our customers, right? So OCI registries, they've gotten really good at, uh, they've become really good at actually storing the content, right? Not just the, you know, AR executables, but content. And so image package actually uh, plays on that and allows you to effectively just push whatever configuration that you've built in your CI and however you locked it down with maybe KBuild. Uh, and push that as this new concept called bundle. Uh, and somebody else now can pull that bundle. Now, since we're in an OCI registry, you get the benefits of it's, you know, has a digest, right? So you can be absolutely sure that you're giving a particular piece of software to somebody. You can go as far as start, you know, signing those things with projects like Cosign and whatnot. So it really just moves the configuration and the associated images uh, into this first class concept. And a good side effect of it is because we effectively know all this information, right? You can imagine OCI registry or rather image package having this notion of the graph of your software, right? So your configuration may reference five images and those five images may, you know, maybe one of those images is for ARM and for AMD64. And so image package knows all of that metadata. And so you can actually take it from one registry and move it into the next registry. And so this is really helpful to people who run air gap environments or people who just want to run a production environment that doesn't have some external dependencies to some random Docker hub or something like that. That's an interesting problem set too. When you start dealing with multiple registries and trying to keep your SHAs in line, your, your digest, you're trying to keep track of all that. That alone is some, like, it's a problem that I don't wish on anyone. So this is cool. Um, that, identify that, with that. That's, that's absolutely the beauty of it is that you don't have to, because all of this stuff gets automated through tooling like KBuild and Image Package, I, you know, honestly, I don't even think of tags as a useful feature anymore. You know, <laughs> it all just gets automated away and humans don't necessarily have to really think about it. And on top of that, you know, when you move stuff from registry to registry, when you move a bundle, I, you know, a lot of times I don't even know what's in the bundle, you know, like how many images there, there might be a hundred images or there might be five images. Makes no difference to me. It's the same command, image package, copy, and you're done. So it's really, I, I think from my point of view, it, it kind of moves the level of, level of burden, you know, to a higher level. You're not really thinking of the low level details anymore. These are, so we've got other tools in the list and there is an endless amount of tooling that we all need, it seems like, for going through Kubernetes. What, we've got Vendor, I think that's one of the, what's the difference, by the way, between the experimental tools and the tools at top? What classifies as experimental? I think the tools at the top are the tools that are, we feel like at a level of maturity where people can just throw them in in the production and be happy with it. 
experimental tools are more in a, well, secret gen controller specifically is production ready, but it's still quite evolving, right? It's trying to find its scope. We actually recently added a really cool feature to secret gen that, you know, that actually ends up to be uh, being used very well with cap controller. And I was really happy about that. But the point about, I think, experimental tools is they're still kind of a, in, in their young stage. They're trying to figure out where does the scope end. Yeah, I feel like we could have an entire show on secret generation and talking about that versus sealed secrets. And which right now I tend to actually for new people, I tend to actually recommend sealed secrets just because people that tend to get into this nowadays may not even have a secret solution yet. So asking them to deploy vault or some other, you know, cloud solution when they don't really have anything solid is a you know, it's just a yet another tool they have to do before they get to Kubernetes. So I'm always promoting things like sealed secrets because it seems like an easier gateway to trying to automate secret management. Is this at all, How? what would be the elevator pitch for comparing this to like sealed secrets kind of solution? Secret gen is a little bit different. It doesn't try to encrypt your secrets or really try to mess with your GitOps flow. It's more about, so, so there's actually two parts to secret gen. There's one, you can generate secrets on the cluster. So secret gen will fill out your secret Kubernetes resource. Let's say if it's a you know, it introduced, let's say, a password CR, right? And so it will go ahead and generate a password for you. And a lot of times I, I feel like for some software that we're deploying, right, it becomes a, an interesting question of, do I really want to be entering a bunch of passwords and all the details, let's say, at the configuration level? Or do I just want the cluster to carry that stuff for me and just not really have to worry about it? So that's kind of one part of secret gen controller. The other part that we really have been kind of a pushing further on is ability to share secrets between the namespaces and also kind of shape the information into a secret. That becomes really handy when you're trying to do the GitOps workflow and when you're trying to actually cooperate between different teams or when you're trying to kind of stitch multiple different pieces of software together. Sometimes the software that maybe, you know, imagine you have an operator that produced some stuff that ended up being in a secret. And then you also need that information to be propagated to some other components that only take in a different format or something like that. Right. So that's, you know, you can, of course, see it as a human there and type away stuff and update stuff and manage it in multiple places. Or you can try to, you know, use software like Secret Gen that will try to shape that stuff and move it along within your cluster. So you, it doesn't right. even type your, you know, computer or anything like that. Yeah, I think that's an important point there is that it shifts right secret management. And that's something that can be a really nasty day two challenge for folks when they realize that secrets are different, that your sensitive data is a slightly different kind of data and its flow is slightly different. And it's expensive to have to pump that stuff through your standard configuration pipeline when say you want to rotate credentials right. or things like that. So I feel like this is like actually maybe like a tool to look at for exactly trying to get started with something that is going to be rather secure. That's a good security stance to be doing all that in the cluster. You're not handling that stuff as much. And it gives you the ability to, to manage the life cycle of that data separately. And since we're talking about some of this project, you know, there, there's a really cool project out there called External Secrets. It's not part of Carvel, but it actually recently, I think it, it has been rewritten in Go, I believe, from JavaScript. But yeah, it, you know, it allows you to pull down the secrets from your, let's say, IaaS solution, right? Where you're storing that secret data, right? Directly into the cluster. So I don't know. I'm a fan of a concept there. Yeah. We'll, be, uh, you know, we'll see if it really takes off and everybody decides to store the secrets that way. 
Yeah, I'm really interested in the workflows of secrets like you're talking about, because it is a unique problem that feels different from the other ones. I mean, sometimes I feel like sealed secrets, as much as I like to recommend them, it creates more problems than I mean, it doesn't create more problems. It just it creates extra problems, but it solves problems. It's worth it. But you also then have the rotation problem and the, the ever changing certificate on your servers and the expectation that people are knowing how to run the tools locally and seal the secrets and whatnot. So, but also t- I feel like telling people, well, you need, you, you're, you got your first Kubernetes cluster started, you have 10 secrets and now you need a vault server. I also feel like that is an <laughs> unnecessary complexity that I can, if I can push that off as great as vault is, and we're going to have them by the way, on the show later this year to talk about, we're going to do some cool vault stuff with HashiCorp. I feel like it, yeah, it's one of those things where I always want to delay the complexity as much as possible in a lot of these things. So having the small isolated tooling actually is more and more, it sounds like it's the right way to go for this stuff. All right, elevator pitch time. What have we not covered that we need to throw in at the last minute? KWT? <laughs> there's a, that, that's actually, a, there's a really great, real quick trivia piece. KWT was actually the first tool that Dimitri wrote as he got started. with it, The tool set used to be called K14S, Kubernetes tools. When he first got going, and it was like, it was because that was the first problem he was trying to deal with. So it, it's, uh, I find it really funny that like, the first tool is still sitting in experimental, but it also is like an attribute to the pragmatic nature in which this project has been going. And that is, hey, whatever the problems are that need the attention, get the attention. Let's ignore KWT and the Terraform provider. But one tool I do want to mention is Vendor. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting tool because it actually came out of my hate of Git submodules, but we found some other interesting uses for it. I just remember constantly, you know, even though I always remembered the commands to run, there was always something wrong going on with Git submodule pointers. And it was just, I don't know, I always had a terrible experience when it actually came to, to, to production level use. And so Vendor actually started out as, give me the configuration file for the things to fetch into my directory. How do you hydrate? How do you declaratively manage the directory content? So again, this tool is entirely oblivious to Kubernetes. It doesn't know anything about anything. It just says, I will know how to manage your directory content based on this configuration file. And we do have a few different fetchers within vendor. You know, you can fetch from Git repo, you know, from Mercurial, from PURLs, or actually you can fetch image package bundles or Helm charts, things like that. And actually, as a tiny little side note, Vendor is actually the tool used within Cap Controller to fetch things. That's that first fetch directive. So like I was saying, Cap Controller is pretty dumb, just delegates to other tools. Yeah. But yeah, I, don't, I find it convenient to, to just manage content locally. And then I, a lot of times I check in that content into, into Git, and then you just keep on syncing it over time and you know pulling it in. Yeah, that's an interesting problem as well, because as teams grow, the proliferation of Git repos for configuration management and infrastructure as code and all that can be a strain. And then I see teams, like you're saying, team. it seems like every team has a different approach to this, right? Git submodules doing, you know, just sort of generic Git pulls and then writing that automation or Git clones rather on a bunch of different unrelated things. People trying to mono repo ap- approaches where they're actually wrapper tools to look at changes over commits. I've seen it all. And it each one of them has their own negatives and drawbacks. And I feel like they're This is one of those tools that sounds like it could be sort of a universal tool to help reduce complexity, it sounds like, across the various ways that you combine all your infrastructure as code and templating and all that stuff. So I'm glad you mentioned it because I can confirm that this is another pain point 
for teams, especially as they go from like their first cluster to five clusters. And now they've got all these environments and their original keep it all simple because that's what I keep, keep telling them. Don't make more repos. Just keep it simple. And then eventually that approach will not be as good as they need it to be. It won't be as flexible and they need to spread things out. And then I have a new hole in the problem. That they're, you know, and I'm glad you don't like I'm glad that someone else feels that pain because I too felt always like it was my fault that Git submodules wasn't like I would suck at them and then they and then I would end up you're right like I don't know what I would do wrong and then suddenly they weren't working and that commit borked something up and now I have to figure out how to undo that whatever I just did with Git submodules so I'm glad to hear some engineer that's smarter than me tell me that it's not great because. I've always thought I just was not getting it. Uh, there, there, was, there was actually a recently a hacker news thread around Git submodules. I think somebody else was saying, you know, I, I always have a problem with it. You know, what am I doing wrong or something along those lines. And I actually uh, found it uh, quite enjoyable to read through various comments on uh, that thread. Was it therapy? <laughs> right. <laughs> Misery yeah. loves company. That's right. So much. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, these are all, I think, projects that I would need to have an individual show on for us to do demos on. And I feel like this was a great show to just sort of introduce the audience out there to all these Carvel tools. How do they get involved? You said there's a bi-weekly community meeting? Yep, that's right. So we have community meetings during the summer, every two weeks, and then we'll return back. I think it's in September. We're going to get back into once a week. We have a very active Slack channel in the Kubernetes workspace. And uh, we're proud of being very responsive when there's conversations, there are questions, whatnot. It's a great place to show up for anything. If you've got trouble with something that you're using one of the tools, you have questions about whether it's appropriate or you're interested in contributing and you want to like get some idea about where you might be able to fit in and like where we're going. We're very happy to take time to really connect with people in the community. We're very community oriented that way. So that the Slack channel is probably the number one best way to get involved, to connect with us. Nice. Or, yeah, the or, Kubernetes Slack is, I was hoping you'd say that you had the channels there because that's that seems to be a theme on this show is everyone's like, just jump in our community Slack and the gigantic world's largest Slack work, work group. But you're also on Twitter. There's Carvel. Carvel Dev. Underscore, I think. Underscore Dev. Yeah, I'll, put, I'll make right. sure that we put that in the show notes for those that want to follow on Twitter for announcements. Yeah, Carvel underscore Dev. Yeah, on Twitter. So just check carvel.dev for your for the next community meetings. Join the Slack. If you're not in the Kubernetes work group, it is all things Kubernetes and all CNCF projects. There's also a CNCF one for the wider community. That And that in Twitter is where I hang out as well as a lot of these other fine folks. So please join us there. Anything else? Last thoughts? I was just going to throw in one more thing is when John was talking about the Slack, do also show up and just tell us what kind of problems you're having with, you know, with just different workflows, tools, et cetera. It doesn't have to be Carvel specific or anything like that. Definitely love to hear, you know, what are people, you know, getting stuck on or what do they love about whatever they're doing? That helps us also, you know, either build new features, new tools, decide maybe that to build certain features or who knows. So all of the input is actually, at least for me, that's the most, that's the most interesting part of various folks coming in and sharing their, their stories. That was literally what I was going to say. Yeah. We're here to solve the problems and we want to solve real ones. And the most real ones are the ones you're dealing with. So yeah. yes, don't be shy. We love to hear about what you're up to. I like your, your statement about what features not to build. I think I learned from Solomon Hikes, no is temporary, yes is forever in open source. So, <laughs> uh, so true. Yeah. 
Well, thank you both for being here. Thanks to the whole team. I see a lot of the VMware activity, the Tanzu project, all in the show notes and on Twitter. We've got so many other growing communities out there that VMware is involved with. So I'm, I'm super glad to have more VMware folks on the show. So thanks for being here. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.